Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, the home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloween-y. My name's Mr. Craigers, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Miss Melmoy, and I'm the other host. Correct. And this is episode 104, in which we will be covering uh, Tony Scott's 1983 vampire film, The Hunger, starring Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, and Susan Sarandon. But before we get to that toothy little nightmare gem, we have a very special guest with us today um, who is cracking the Five Timers Club, in fact, in terms of guest appearances. Um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Splatter Chatter, Matt Shore. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I definitely need a place where October never dies now that we're uh, heading into the holiday season. <laughs> yeah, we were chatting before we started about your spooky holiday decorations in fact which is an excellent way to keep up the creep so well done Matt. <laughs> thank you thank you i'm especially proud of what i accomplished there <laughs> yeah that's, that's really good um so we're happy to have you back. You're here to tell us a little bit about um, one of your most recent projects and there's a Kickstarter for that project. Um, and we're gonna give you a chance to plug that in a little bit. But first let's do some uh, horror headlines, read, watch and listen check-ins and see what people have been getting up to um, over the last month and change, I think, because our October episode was yeah. a little bit earlier in the month, I think. Um, so Miss Mel, what do you got for us? What you been up to? What'd you do for the end of spooky season? Well, I watched, as you'll remember from the table where you spent, I don't know how much money on various Blu-rays and DVDs at our, um, our, uh, marathon, I bought a Blu-ray of, um, the Collingwood story. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I watched that and it was very interesting. I mean, it's definitely, you know, in a post it's like anything else where like you know now 20 years later it's like oh like okay that was nice and, and sort of was what it was but like thinking about it in the context of it coming out in 2001 i think it was very very interesting it, it like was doing like i think it was doing video chatting before i think that was really a thing like i was trying to think of when video chatting started and they posited in this movie as like a new sort of thing that this this long distance couple are doing and they play around a lot with like sort of the advent of the internet and like like um you know like the the call-in psychics who would tell you something creepy or something interesting and then say to give me you know pay me 150 dollars to find out more and, and that sort of thing and it was it was a lot of fun That sounds really good. And I'm glad that like you were satisfied with your focus. Yeah, no, it was, it's a fun little gem to have. And it definitely just seeing all that stuff that they had on that table, I kind of want to, I mean, as we know, I wish I had bought Crimes of the Black Cat. Right. Giallo film that was there, but um, no, it's it, it was a fun little movie to uh, to explore kind of like a forgotten grand parent of many current found footage films i would say so yeah. and you said 2001 it came out i think yeah i think it was 2001 when i looked it up after it i watched Blair witch wave pretty hard yeah 
Yeah. So, um, and it was completely different from Blair Witch. I mean, it's, you know, you're yeah. watching a screen the entire time. Um, you're bouncing between like watching people's Google searches, watching people talk to each other over video chat. Um, at a couple different points, they talk to like a psychic online, um, which kind of kickstarts a lot of the plot and that sort of thing. So that's to be a fun little, and it takes place obviously during Halloween. So oh, perfect. that was a fun, fun little, fun little thing to do. Love it. Yeah. Um, Matt. How was your Halloween? What have you been up to? My Halloween was, what's that? Is it super spooky? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, I did the suburban thing. So uh, had almost 200 kids come trick-or-treating uh, to Ooh. our house. And we're the, we, we fancy ourselves the ultimate Halloween house. I was going to say, you have a popular got, house. Yeah. yeah, we've got, we've got two, count them, two. Uh, 12 foot skeletons that we put out on the front lawn. We've nicknamed them Bruce and Bert. We've got a, a gigantic spider out there who's almost as big as Bruce and Bert uh, with a skull for a head, actually homemade that guy. Uh, we've got like a swamp monster out there with a pumpkin head. Um, we've got a whole graveyard, so much out there. I, I can't really do it justice. I got to share pictures to, to really show it off. But uh, for me, the best part was uh, we, for the first time, really tried our hands at a walkthrough it's very humble we've never done this before but it created this sort of wall that people would walk behind where i was back uh on the front porch with candy and whenever they got close i had one of those little spirit halloween spiders if anybody mm -hmm. has seen them <laughs> like yeah. jump up i would just tap it with my foot and it was shadowed so people wouldn't see it and i i scared way more kids than i should have that night. <laughs> but that That's that was that made my evenings <laughs> but we ran out of candy was the only problem so i had to actually start cannibalizing my kids stash like pull little tootsie <laughs> rolls out you you won't miss the tootsie rolls so here oh, <laughs> so, but but it was a good night we everybody had fun and uh, my my kids actually ventured farther out in the neighborhood than they ever have so that was fun um so yeah and uh our, our big thing this year my big addition, I always project something and I try to get something new. This year I got one called like uh, Final Girls. So it was like these girls straight out of the 80s banging on the window, begging for help while this killer comes up. And at the last second, the girl ducks and slices wow. the window. So it's pretty cool. So, yeah, cool. they never they never get the girls. They always get away. So but that was that was fun. So but there were times where kids would just stand there, spend like five or six minutes watching. <laughs> The whole thing like is she gonna the get away is she gonna get away because yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. most yeah, most of the projections i've done they're just little repeating things like dancing skeletons or whatever this was the first time it was like a full-on continuous thing and like a yeah, narrative. They, almost yeah and people wanted to see how it ended and it's like i got bad news for you kids if it's like any other horror movie it's not gonna end <laughs> we just go till we're tired <laughs> that's so cool you guys are like the the horror house basically i like to think so i do yeah we've got uh, one or two homes that are trying to catch up with us but i may mm -hmm. be biased i i think we're still in the lead it sounds like it yeah, yeah we, we won the first ever neighborhood contest so i'm i'm, I'm saying mm -hmm. we're, we're top dogs yeah yes. I, I call myself the the self-declared king of halloween yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and did you dress up uh i did what did I dress up as? I've lost too much sleep since then. Oh. <laughs> um, 
I know that my son was Spider-Man. I desperately wanted to be uh, Dr. Octopus, but I just ran out of time. So I couldn't put that oh, and that I couldn't figure a, out. A, it's a hefty I, costume. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to connect it to myself in a way that would work with the tools that I had. So I don't know if he's still into Spider-Man, I'll, I'll try it next year. But yeah. uh, th this year I was clearly something very forgettable. <laughs> so yeah. I some, oh, I know what I did. I had this, I finally got my hands on a gigantic top hat. I've wanted a top hat for so long. So mm -hmm. I wore that and then my trench coats. So I, I kind of looked like something straight out of, uh, uh, what, what's the word I'm like? Jack the Ripper almost, mm -hmm. so. A creepy gentleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Nice. Um, and have you watched or read or listened to anything spooky lately that you want to recommend or talk about? Oh, let's see. I've, I've discovered audio podcasts and I've got kind of into those, um, like uh, audio drama ones. Mm -hmm. and the, the, the one that I'm really kind of into right now is called Tower Four. It's about uh, this guy who goes to this watchtower out in like uh, like Yellowstone or whatever, where they have these towers just out in the middle of the park where there's like nobody around for miles. And their only job is to just basically live there and watch for fires, like if there's a storm and lightning strikes or whatever, and call it in. But they're up there all alone with uh, um, just radio equipment straight out of the like 80s. <laughs> they have no internet, so they're completely isolated. So uh, the guy that this follows a guy named uh, mike i believe mike's slowly seems to be going crazy over the course of this series so it's like i don't don't quite know where it's going to end i'm still halfway through season two that sounds pretty cool yeah I, what was it called again it's called tower four and i have to listen to that one yeah it's 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 kind of addictive it's, it's really engrossing mm -hmm. i've listened to two or three but that's the one that i keep like because I try to space it out because that one, they don't release new episodes very often. So it's like, I don't want to eat them all up yet, but yeah. I keep coming back to it. It's like, oh, it's, I want the next one. So. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that sounds cool. I've listened to a couple, um, I guess they're like anthology, like horror podcasts. Mm -hmm. where it's like, like a no sleep type deal. Yeah, like no yeah. sleep, and spooked is good, radio rental. Um, Spooked, yeah, I've heard that one. That, that's a real good one. That one's yeah. really, yeah, mm -hmm. production value is pretty high. Um, but I like the idea of this, like, sort of like long form stretched out over, you know, <laughs> like that sounds really cool. Yeah. Um. All right. What am I going to highlight? Let's see. <laughs> do, 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 do. Have you? Did you watch? Um. Don't worry, darling. Yet. It's kind of horror adjacent but not yet i keep putting it <laughs> off because i know it's gonna be bad <laughs> i did watch that the other day um because it's on hbo max now but yeah i saw that it's, it, it does have some creepy moments and some creepy imagery so i think it's worth mentioning as a sort of like horror slash horror adjacent uh deal but boy is it a ride yeah <laughs> you know the other night I was like I guess I was in the mood to just get a bad movie out of the way and I considered Don't Worry Darling but instead I watched They Slash Them yeah, <laughs> yeah it was not good I watched that one over the summer and I did not find it to be there's a lot there but no the, there was definitely a lot there with the concept they just 
didn't really think past the concept, I feel like. Yeah. So. And, like, it was obvious that, like, no, none of the, like, good, for lack of a better term, characters, like, none of the kids were in danger. Yeah. So there were no stakes, really. Yeah. Um, but I also saw Terrifier 2, see what all the fuss was about, all the people vomiting and fainting in theaters. <laughs> I was going to ask, did you get sick? didn't faint. But I mean, you know, we're sort of like immune to a lot of that. I mean, I feel like. Yeah, I also <laughs> wonder, I mean, like for me, stuff like that, I'm like, I know part of that's like a hype machine. You know, like they want to hype up those stories and people were like saying like, oh yeah, there's a security guard outside my theater. And I'm like, that's 100% like a hired actor, but that's okay. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. having fun. Definitely, I think a lot was probably generated by the marketing department. On the other hand, I'm glad it did so well in theaters um, for an independent movie to make that much money was cool. And it's, it was it was fun. It was good. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I wasn't nauseous or anything. <laughs> I agree. I'm always happy when an independent project does well. So yeah, I may yeah. have to get, get out and see that one. I haven't seen the first one, so I need to do that too. The first one is odd, but <laughs> but yeah. It's I say very- is it odd in a good way or a bad way? Because when it comes to horror, there it, it can also be good to be odd. Yeah. It's um <laughs> there it is. That so sums it up. That's, and that's that on the wrap on. Yep. That's a wrap. <laughs> All right. We're going to move on. Did I do anything else? Let's see. Oh, yeah. I finished The Midnight Club on Netflix. Oh, be quiet. Oh I'm watching God, that I, one. I did. Oh, okay. Now I can start. I'm really into that, that one. I'm really good. logged back into my yes. Netflix account. I'm, I'm three episodes in, and I, it's it's so addictive. I love it. It's yeah. really good. It, and it was when I realized Heather Langenkamp was in it, I almost fanboyed out. Like, oh, it's so Nancy! Good. Nancy! <laughs> oh, good. Just wait. Just Oh, my God. Yeah, and Mesmo, you haven't started it yet, right? No, because I got a new TV and took a really long time to log back into my Netflix because I forgot my Netflix password. <laughs> That's right. But I have gotten back in over this weekend. So, because uh, I, I want to watch that. And then I also, I heard... um the the horror movie that came out over the summer with Asa Butterfield that's like sort of like a dare like a dare type like the 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 concept of it is like you you accept dares on the internet or that sort of thing oh yeah I know what you're talking about I I think I I had a friend who who saw that who said it was fun so I wanted to watch that as well but um yes I will keep keep everyone abreast when I uh when when I start watching that (laughs) For some reason, my first, I mean, I was like, well, I got to at least watch the first episode of The Crown to find out what all the fuss is about there. But, well, um, I'm, I'm going to watch that too. Yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm not too proud. That, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, that's not why we're here. So, um, <laughs> the royal family is a different kind of horror. I can say yes. if you're among the indigenous peoples of Australia and yeah. Africa, it's pretty or horrifying. anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I will, I will, it's, I think I, I mentioned before, I, I might have told you, Craig, I'm not sure, but um, a couple, like a month ago, I was in the postal office dropping some stuff off and like I was in line and I heard the, 
um, woman who, you know, like the, the clerk or, or whatever, talking to a guy who I guess is like a regular, because they have regulars at USPS, I guess, um, who <laughs> about what? Midnight Club. And when it was my turn, I was like, oh, like, I haven't watched it yet because I heard her talking about it. And she just like was going on and on about it. And she was like, yeah, she was like, we're on episode six or whatever and she was like yeah my kids are like 10 and 13 but i'd rather them ask me about that stuff and watch it at home you know like she was giving me the whole thing and then she was telling me about how she compared it to to midnight mass and haunting a film <laughs> like she had it was a good conversation but um yeah yeah this one's definitely more kid friendly um well i got the sense it was kind of like a little bit edgier than goosebumps like if you're yeah. for like older teens it's a it, it has that vibe because it's based off of the christopher pike novels which were sort mm -hmm. of going off of that goosebumps mm -hmm. fear sort of vibe um, nice. yeah so matt you are here um to tell us a bit about uh one of your new projects that you're raising money for on kickstarter and this is a, it's a, is this a, is it a middle grade novel? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of goosebumps vibes, that's, uh, yeah. that's exactly what I'm going for with this. Okay, I think <laughs> this is a cool for a segue, but I couldn't remember the exact age group. So yeah. He was like, no, it's actually an NC-17. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, with your, we're going hardcore with this one. <laughs> Terrifier 2 is nothing compared to this book. Buckle up, kids. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's for young kids, yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. Kidding, yeah, kidding, kidding, of course. NC-17. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kidding, of course, yeah. No, this is, uh, and you can tell by the title, I'm kidding, because it's called Flight of the Phantasmodactyls. <laughs> this is actually the, uh, it's the fourth in a series of books that I've done. Uh, for this though that they're all kind of sequential it's like the first one i did was attack of the zombie source rex and then that was followed up by uh scourge of the vampire velociraptors and then after that we had curse of the werasaurus and so now the kids who have faced those three horrors are now facing the flight of the phantasmodactyls so oh, no, giving flying one these poor yeah, kids i'm giving them a horrible horrible childhood i would feel bad if it wasn't so fun to do <laughs> but uh, yeah it's it's very it's got a real definite goosebumps inspired feel uh as well as other stuff that i grew up with like uh, scary stories to tell in the dark um tales from the crypt yes i grew up with tales from the crypt i, <laughs> I met the crypt keeper when i was five uh, back at a time when uh maybe you two are old enough to remember the disclaimer that said uh the following is not intended for all audiences viewer discretion <laughs> is advised to a five-year-old boy, that translated to "stay tuned for something awesome," and so I did. Yeah, yeah, and so that's that just I, meant you gotta watch this. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> I don't know why they down, but <laughs> yeah, I don't. I the only people who really learned how effective a marketing campaign that is is uh, guys who did South Park because they like mm -hmm. straight up at the beginning of every episode like this shouldn't be viewed by anyone, but of course <laughs> everybody did. Yeah, but. uh so yeah, so in this one, we've got, uh, just like it says, uh, pterodactyls who are kind of ghostly. They can fly through walls uh, and everything. Uh, the, the catch is, though, that they, they can fly through walls. You can't touch them, but they can touch you. Oh, it's so, like the haunted house rules. Yeah, it's, like, it's uh... kind of, yeah. <laughs> this, this tricky one is, these are really trying to kill you, so. Yeah. 
Okay. Yep. Yeah, but it's uh, it's it really harkens kind of back, I think, to the first one, the Zombie Source Rex one. It's this just this massive series of chase sequences, essentially, with this monster chasing these kids and then constantly trying to get away from it. Um, and then other ones, I, I changed it up quite a bit. Uh, we we had like almost like a Wild West shootout and uh, Velociraptors, and then of course the the Werasaurus one. There's a lot of mystery and intrigue, like who's the Werasaurus? Who is it? Who is it? Because it's clearly a person turning into this thing. Mm -hmm. And so this one harkens back to that first one. There's a lot of chase sequences, which for me are are really fun to write because I basically end each chapter with something else going wrong. So it's like, okay, I'm gonna, if something else goes wrong, then I'll walk away from it. And then when I come back, it's like, all right, so how do we fix this? And then something else go wrong. So I, I did that basically 30 times. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it is, that, that, it's so fun to write these poor kids, <laughs> put, them through the, put them through such crap. So is this, is this, uh, where does this series end or does it end? Or do you just keep going until you run out of ideas of how to torture these poor children? It, it's definitely that. Cause I have got some other monster ideas in my head. So uh, yeah, and I, and I definitely want to play with them all. So I don't really have a definite end in sight. I've, I've got an idea for like, if I do finally run out that I need a conclusion, what it would be. And it would probably be this kind of big all out, you know, uh, Godzilla destroy all monsters type thing where everything shows up, bit Marvel crossover, but with monsters type thing. But uh, right now, I'm just having fun introducing all these new monsters that these kids have to deal with. Love it. Nice. What's your favorite dinosaur? Triceratops. Mm. That you one's that easy. question a lot at work, Craig. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But this I, was applicable to put it back on someone else. No, it was. <laughs> it's a fair question right now. Yeah. I got to come up with something for one of those guys, but it's hard to, to for me to see a triceratops as a monster or a villain since it's a plant eater. Like to me, the triceratops was the tough guy of the dinosaurs because, like, you know, the T Rex would come in and T Rex could kill all these other dinosaurs, but there's no way he was going to get his teeth around a uh, triceratops mm -hmm. he's got that he's got like metal plating all around his neck and then he's got those three horns it's, it's not going to work they probably existed at different times too but still i'm, I'm holding on to that the triceratops could hold his own if he had to yeah yeah jurassic park has ruined all conception yeah. like, like, <laughs> so every single dot like you yeah, like, yeah they were all there together like, yeah. were, like at the watering hole yeah. yeah. So who do we blame for this? Michael Crichton or Steven Spielberg? I don't, I don't know. Hmm. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. Yeah. What's funny is what the what we have now, I think, was exactly what Michael Crichton was complaining about in the first book. Right? Like commercializing like real life and then just yeah. mucking it all up. We're like 50 years out from like a real Jurassic Park, like being a thing that somebody <laughs> opens. I feel like so. There was you know, like a year or two ago about such and such scientists think they might be able to d d d clone a dinosaur from leftover blah blah blah. So I was just like, there are six movies about why this is a terrible idea. <laughs> right. 
You know, I, I think though what you would have is a war of the world scenario if you did, and so like you'd have all these terrifying dinosaurs, but then within a week they would all catch a cold and die because yeah. they never evolved to withstand the flu strains like we did. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, yeah, don't do it for the dinosaurs too. Yeah, don't make them suffer. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so your work and so you're you're finished with this. Mm -hmm. uh, your phantasmagal pterodactyls. They're Fant all done. Phantasmodactyls. Yes, yes, it is. Thank yep. you. Yes, and uh, I want to make sure and mention that uh, the first 10 people that order physical copies, we have uh, free comics that we're going to include, in, not just cheap little ones, but actually like full comics from my anthology comic series called The Haunt. So the first 10, so jump on it quick. First 10 people will get a free comic with it. And then we also have some other uh, freebies that we're going to give away because, you know, hey, it's Christmas. And oh. uh, just like Jack Skellington, we're going to give away gifts, but they're going to be scary ones. That's awesome. And now where would people be able to do that? You can look it up. Just look it up on Kickstarter. You'll find Flight of the Phantasmodactyls. And uh, I will also be ha I'll also have a link on my own website, mattshore.net. And uh, I won't list them all right now, but my social media handles, if you follow on any of those, I'll be sharing links to it there as well. Perfect. And we'll be sure to tweet that out as well when we post the episode. Cool. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And you're kind of all over the place, you know, as a lot of our longtime listeners know, because you're a columnist and a podcaster and a writer and... A lot of people know you from Small Town Journalist or Back from the Deep, which you were promoting the last couple of times you were on. So you're, you're you know, you're just this multi-talented, <laughs> multi-faceted uh, horror guy. And we love having you on every single time. Um, I love being here. Thanks. Yeah, I'm known in different corners for different things. I always say I'm known online as the guy who did Moby Dick. I'm, I'm known at conventions since they're all my region is like right in the heart of the Bible Belt. I'm known as the guy who did Jesus Christ, Demon yeah. Slayer. So <laughs> that's the one everybody notices. And I finally got my first negative reaction to it uh, at really? my last convention. Yeah, yeah. That and it was probably a fun thing. Maybe <laughs> it was. It was kind of mild, and it was over mm -hmm. before I had a chance to register it. But uh, this one lady came up, and she just starts looking through, and then just oh, not appropriate, not appropriate, and then walked away. So that was it. That's hilarious. I remember asking you about that, like one of the first couple times you were on, if you had ever gotten any backlash or anything, and you hadn't that's, at the time. Yeah, that, that's the closest to backlash I've had. So, it's like I'm, I'm always kind of waiting for it. Like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not looking for a fight, but I won't back down either. So, that's awesome. But uh, for, nothing so controversial in Phantasmodactyl since it's going for younger readers. No, uh, no muscled up Jesus with a... No, no Jason Momoa <laughs> does not make a special appearance in this book. But maybe the next one? <laughs> I, I probably, probably some licensing issues there and I get, get in some kind of trouble. So I don't know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, speaking of next, what is next? What's, what's, what's on the horizon for, for Matt Shore? Well, the biggest one right now is the Kickstarter because that's that's gonna gonna dominate my life for the the holiday season. I'll be launching it on Black Friday, and then uh, all through the holiday season, you know, uh, don't don't go to Amazon, don't don't go to Walmart, go to Kickstarter, and uh, get an indie writer's book. That's what that's what you need. You need this. But uh, after that, um, 
we'll be uh, start. I'm going to be. I've been slowly going back into conventions uh, now that we're hopefully crawling out of the pandemic. I don't think we're out out, but maybe we're sort of maybe our heads are above water at this point. So as it appears to get safer, I'm, I'm planning to uh, get more and more active and show up more places. Um, still pretty much in the Bible Belt, though, so I'll probably still be known as the guy with the Jesus comic. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exciting that people might be able to see you on the convention circuit, you know, mm -hmm. next. I, I love I love doing conventions because uh, in addition to putting my own stuff out there and meeting new people, uh, I also get to connect with other because there are other independent writers who go to these things. It's and it's great connecting with them. And a lot of times, somebody there is going to have a book that I want. And uh, yeah, every time I, I every convention I go to, I come back with at least one comic or one book or just something I'm excited about. Uh, the the last one I actually got homemade marshmallows though, so that was that what? was fun. And their flavor is death by chocolate. I have, I have not been able to eat them yet, but I'm looking forward to that. Oh my gosh! Homemade marshmallow. Homemade. That's yep. some great British. You don't think about like right how there. marshmallows are made and like what does that look like? Right. I don't. I don't know. Theirs are actually cubes. So. Oh. Wow. But you so, haven't. Yeah. I haven't yet. I'm waiting for the weekend to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to get, if they're death by chocolate marshmallow, so I got to get some dark chocolate Hershey's and of course a graham cracker with it. You got to do this right. Of course. Yeah. Even though it's chocolate marshmallow, you got to also add a Hershey's to it. That's it's, it's a rule. It's, it's in various religious texts in certain places. I'm sure the Torah, the Bible that they all say it somewhere. I'm sure. I think they all quote it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty important. Yeah. 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 That's a bit. Also, also in Marvel's history of the universe. It's yeah. All that. <laughs> <laughs> well matt thank you so much for coming by again um like i said we're always happy to have you and you're always welcome um whether you have something to plug or not um we're happy to have you well thanks i i love joining you guys it's always great i, I don't get to talk horror a whole lot because my wife is not as into it as me and my kids are all way too young so it's it's cool to to chat about it with, with some folks even if i'm way behind but uh, I was I was excited when we brought up the Midnight Club. It's like I've seen that one. I've, I know that one. Yeah, I haven't yeah. finished it, but I'm watching it. That's right. Oh, oh, oh! And we forgot you mentioned earlier. You did also get a chance to see Halloween Ends. I did. I saw the ever divisive Halloween Ends. Halloween now has more timelines than the X Men movies. It sure does. It's choose your own <laughs> adventures. We like to think of it. Yeah. We shared our thoughts on the last episode, I believe, but. Mm -hmm. What, what was your take? Where do you fall on the very divisive spectrum? <laughs> you know what? Uh, I liked it. Um, I, I liked the first one the best, which is the way it always goes. Anytime there's a new anything, it's this way with Halloween. It's just, It was that way with Godzilla, every new era. The first one is always the best. So mm -hmm. that very first one was just phenomenal, where it's all about, it, it was a ride. We talked about rides and that one was a full on ride where it's uh, all about Lori just taking the fight to Michael for the first time like nobody ever has. Uh, this one was much more cerebral. I can see why people didn't like it. Um, it's fair, but I, I, I kind of got into it like it was unique and it was just different. And it's like if we're going to go this sort of route like we're ending Michael well, evil doesn't die though. So it's if it can't have Michael, it's probably gonna find somebody else. So that was an interesting thing to play with. And I, I gotta admit, I really did dig at the end 
Uh, spoiler alert, should I say that? <laughs> spoiler alert. Uh, I dug how at the end where the entire town basically congregated and they found him and someone said, uh, like, this isn't how you do things to the police. And they said, we do tonight. <laughs> they have this huge procession. It's like the, he's, you know, haunted everyone's lives. And it's like everyone's going to be there and own this thing. And I, I dug that, too. So, yeah, like not not the best Halloween movie of the series, but I got into it. I liked it. Okay. I know. I think I'm the only one in America who felt that no, way. I, no, no I, it's one of those things where I, I think in a couple years, I mean, people are already having these conversations, but I think in a couple years, like people will start to do their retrospective in defense of Halloween yeah. ends pieces, and um, my, it will probably be one of those one of those deals. The the only ones that I outright hated were the ones that Rob Zombie did. Because um, to me, those, I, and I only watched his first one. After that, I'm like, now nah, I'm not going back. And I thought I was mm -hmm. done with Halloween until J.B. Lee Curtis came back. But it's like you took everything about Michael Myers. The whole concept of Michael Myers was that he shouldn't have been crazy. He grew up in a normal, loving home. And that was the yeah. whole point, according to John Carpenter, was well, that. Why he did what he did. Yeah, there's no reason for it. And it was also like evil can exist anywhere. Like mm -hmm. at the time that he made it, most movies and stories, evil was always in inner cities and like urban sprawl and whatever. It didn't happen in suburbia. It didn't happen in small towns. And John Carpenter came out with this movie saying, well, actually, because we all had that story of that one house on the lane that was haunted or whatever, something happened there, stay away from that part of town. Uh, so it's like, yeah, there's definitely stuff happening in small towns, maybe even worse because they're better at covering it up where but rob zombie took it and just like completely did away with all that it's like no 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 michael's screwed up he had a bad childhood and so he became evil it's just like mm -hmm. and that just infuriated me it's like the whole core essence of halloween was that so and that might be why i was okay with halloween ends because um it harkened back to that even if even if i didn't like what directions they took at least it's held on to that core that evil can be anywhere and it can be unpredictable even though the the way they did it with this guy who we i forgot his name who sort of became the new michael cory that's it cory yeah. yeah the way they did it like yes you you have this kind of traumatic event but until that event really he should have been normal too it, it shouldn't have happened mm -hmm. so it it i don't know it, like i said not the best in the series uh, but it was interesting. I, I almost, I think I view it almost the way I view Halloween three. So it's like, it's not great, but it's fascinating. <laughs> so. Divisive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, boy, there are some hardcore Halloween three lovers out there. <laughs> there You've met a couple of them in, in the wild. Yeah. It's, it's a decent movie. Uh, the, my problem with it isn't really that it, left michael out it's that it creates these rules and then doesn't abide by them <laughs> it's like, and it's really clunky and yeah it's like i know what you're going for i appreciate it but it's not really working for me <laughs> so, it's so uh, wild though that movie <laughs> it's very wild it's it's way uh, way wild yeah but anyway yeah halloween 3 i liked it i enjoyed it uh it was well worth five bucks to watch at home if i had paid 15 dollars in a theater i might feel differently so yeah. it was nice to to be able to have that at home streaming option. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And so I guess now there'll be a new timeline because you know they're not going to stop making them. So yeah. <laughs> do something else. <laughs> Give it a couple of years and they'll figure out what they want to do next. I hope so badly we have a multiverse of madness with Michael Myers and they bring back Sam Loomis and everybody. <laughs> do it all. Yes. I, I want that so bad. And of course, I mean, you've already got Paul Rudd. So bring yeah. him in there. Yeah. Who doesn't age. So you could just. He doesn't. Back in there. <laughs> it, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I, he looks older in The Curse of Michael yeah. Myers than he does now. He does now, I know. What, what deal with the devil did he make? Witchcraft. Uh, it was with the uh, Thorn. That, that's what did it. Yeah. That's it. All righty. Well, thank you again, good sir. Sure. Uh, thank you. You look out for a donation from us in the Kickstarter. Oh, thanks so much. Um, looking forward to reading about your phantasmagal little pterodactyls. And... <laughs> it is. It's a fun word, phantasmodactyls. I Phantasm and pterodactyls. Yeah. Phantasmodactyls. Yeah. <laughs> can't wait, and can't wait to have you back again. Um, I look forward to it. Yeah. Anytime. We'll have another uh, divisive uh, movie or, or something to, to chat about. <laughs> right. Always. Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Well, thanks once again to Matt Shore for joining us. Um, the first official member of the Splatter Shatter Five Timers Guest Club. Yeah, I'm going to have to get jackets. We're going to get him a jacket. Um, don't hold us to that, Matt, but, you know, <laughs> one, one day, one day, one and uh, speaking of Paul Rudd and things that don't age, it's time to talk about vampires. Vampires. <laughs> vampires. Specifically, the vampires featured in uh, Tony Scott's The Hunger. Uh, but first, let's take a listen to the trailer. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of the hunger. John Blaylock. The hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting. And soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. The timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear.
Mysterious, sensual, strange, perverse, riveting. The Hunger. Alright, so we're going to kick things off with our opening question, which is always the same whenever we talk about a specific film, and it's going to be fairly easy this time around. <laughs> the opening question is, when did you first see this film, and what were your impressions? Well, um, it was about three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Give or take, yeah. Um, yes, as, as you all know, we um, went to the Exhumed Film Festival, the 15th annual Exhumed Film Festival um, at the Colonial Theater in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. And this was maybe like the fifth film in the fourth film. There was the fourth film in that. I think this was the first one we saw after we had our dinner break. It was right before our dinner break. It was right before our dinner break because after this was Polanski. Yeah. Um, but yes, this was a, and what, uh, you've got the, the book in front of you. What was the hint I, for this one? I do, yeah, yeah. So for folks that don't know, you know, there, um, 15 movies were screened and um, we didn't know what they were going to be until the movie started, but we were given clues um, and there was a, a, a game and a giveaway. So we entered that and we got, we guessed the, well, we didn't guess that Just many. a couple. No, we guessed, we got the first one and the Polanski one. Yeah. And we had to but uh, so yeah, so the, so the hunger was movie number four and the clue was cool, creepy, and erotic new wave horror favorite. Some people somehow got that, got the clue from, the, the, the movie would begin to start and you'd hear somebody in the audience just go, yes, like, you know, in excitement that they had like guessed it. And, you know, we're like two seconds into the film, not even the film, like, you know, like the presented by whatever. And it's like, all right, well, I guess they, they just know. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was, was my first time seeing it. And I, and I think it was yours too. It was. It was my first time as well. Um, I obviously knew of The Hunger mm -hmm. uh, as an 80s vampire movie. I knew it was regarded as kind of a cult favorite, um, but it was not something I had gotten around to until the marathon, um, which was really cool because most of what we saw at the marathon were first time views, I think. Um, yeah, Mothra. I, Mothra, Island of Lost Souls. Island of Lost Souls, um, Twins of Evil. Twins of Evil, oh. A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then there were two repeats that we saw which for both of us, which was Peeping Tom and The Descent. Mm -hmm. uh, we missed, we saw, we saw seven of the 15 movies. Yeah, because About. we took a we took a sleep break and yeah. also a car situation break. <laughs> but. Yeah, yeah, but this was this was the fourth movie we did. The first four movies did them all. We powered through, and then we decided we needed a dinner break because this is kind of a psychologically um, involved movie. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of intellectual. It's sort of heady. Um, 
but let's talk a little bit about like where did this come from like uh we know it's based on a novel correct mm -hmm. yes which i learned in the fact that i just you know after we were done the the marathon i was like what is you know like looking up different movies and stuff. Yeah. I read a lot about Mothra. Um, <clears throat> I did too. I kind of went to Mothra. But um, I almost for a second was like, should we do Mothra for this? But I'm like, no. Everyone's probably done Mothra in a. a podcast, so. I did. I did have a moment because I was thinking about all the movies we saw and like, could we do? Could we make a good episode? Yeah, we probably could. And I was like, oh, if we do Mothra, we could make the intro music, the song. Uh, yeah, so maybe we'll eventually do Mothra for Mothra um, trip of a movie. But this one, based on a book called The Hunger as well, okay. by Whitley Strieber, or Strieber, I'm not sure how you say that. It was published in 1981. Okay. Um, and I guess it was kind of unique at the time because it explored, it's a few years after Interview with a Vampire. Um, but it it like takes a different path like it's a more of a science fiction type explanation like you know basically portraying vampires as this humanoid species that like just doesn't age and you know subsides on human blood and that sort of thing and it it like goes into um like basically the realistic like logistics of like if you were a vampire in like modern times like how do you feed yourself what do you do with victims <laughs> and, and that right. sort of thing um i haven't i would like to read it i added it to my list um just because it seems very interesting and there are two sequels uh the last vampire that came out in 2001 and lilith lilith's dream colon a tale of vampire life that came out in 2003 um the author, Stryber, though, is probably more, I mean, he's written also um, the horror novel, The Wolfen, that came out in 1973, which I think was actually pretty, it was a pretty, it was a debut and it was a pretty well-received novel. Yeah, and they um, made it to a movie too. It's a Wolfen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, he is more well-known at this point for his claims of what we would call like alien abduction. He claims it wasn't aliens. He calls them something else. He, as he gets later in life talking about it, it takes on like more religious tones and that sort of thing. But he wrote at least um, three or four books about his experience in December of 1985, getting supposedly abducted by what he called the visitors. Um, so that's something. <laughs> Um, the other thing he was involved in is um, he was one of the co-authors of the nonfiction book that became the basis for the 2004 film, The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, good movie. Yeah. Yeah. So he's all over the place. He's all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting that his supposed experience was after the publication. Yeah. He, yeah, and he, the book, the, the most famous book, and I think this is the one that a lot of people know um, for from abduction stories and like just media around alien abductions was Communion, um, where he just sort of outlined his experience. And I think a lot of the sort of motifs of alien abductions come from uh, that book. Okay. So, um, but yeah, like I was going through his sort of catalog of, of of things he's written and he's very prolific but it like 
it's it's interesting stuff <laughs> um as we get farther down uh the timeline but um yeah he wrote the hunger though and um it seemed to to be a hit with folks because it has like i said two sequels and it was optioned pretty quickly because this movie came out in 1983 i believe Yes. Um, and in fact, uh, it quickly caught the eye of uh, producer Richard Shepard. He was actually able to read it pre-publication uh, in 1980 and um, liked it so much that he immediately bought the rights for MGM. Um, so it was like a hit even before it was a hit, essentially. And um, yeah, so that went into production relatively quickly uh, after MGM got it. Ridley Scott was originally chosen to direct, um, but he dropped out after learning that David Bowie would be involved, which is fascinating because that would make me like double sign up. <laughs> right. I couldn't find like what that meant. It was just like that was a breaking point, I guess, for him. <laughs> he didn't want to work with David Bowie. I guess maybe like, I don't know, in like the early 80s, maybe it was like, oh, what's this like pop singer doing trying to like, be in a movie and be an actor like go away yeah like I don't know yeah well and I've been trying to think because like when did the labyrinth come out oh. it was later right I think it, was it definitely was later let me double check real quick but I, I do think it was after this I think Is it was it late 80s. 80s or late 86 for labyrinth yeah okay so not that crazy much after but like I don't know. I feel like my, you know, and this is probably just because of like the time period I grew up in and the fact that my sister was obsessed with the labyrinth, but like that was my introduction to David Bowie in like films was Great. the labyrinth. So, you know, I'd see that and I'd be like, yeah, like that guy could play a vampire. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what out, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so he pulled out, um, Alan Parker was also considered to direct, um, but he wasn't able to do it. So he recommended Ridley Scott's younger brother, Tony Scott, um, cause he had seen some of his commercials. I mean, Tony Scott was interested. He had actually expressed interest in directing the film adaptation of Interview with the Vampire. Um, and so they were like, well, how about this other? <laughs> the other one. Yeah, <laughs> the other, what do you think? And he was like, sure, cool. Um, so this was his, he had directed to, um, like smaller indie um, films before this, The Hunger was his first theatrical film. So more or less functioning as his debut. As we'll talk about later, it was not um, a critical or a commercial success. And um, it kind of harmed his career for a little bit, but then he came back and directed Top Gun. <laughs> Hard swing. Large swing and obviously incredibly successful. Um, and then he kind of became sort of like the prototype for the action adventure movie of um, the 80s and into the 90s. Um, after Top Gun, he did Beverly Hills Cop 2, Days of Thunder, The Last Boy Scout. He had gone to do True Romance, Enemy of the State, Spy Game, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Um, so he sort of found his niche um <laughs> and after this best. and it wasn't this yeah so this is kind of an odd uh moment in on his resume um but an interesting one 
and one that he um was invested in and excited about he was very inspired and influenced by the photography of Irving Penn when coming up for the visual sense of the film um and I'm not super familiar with famous photographers but I did quickly no. look up Irving Penn and like you can see it you can tell yeah so that's kind I of cool this. Irving Penn <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah I can see that right yeah yeah um and so the so the rights for the novel were acquired and the screenplay was written by Ivan Davis and Michael Thomas um they actually were working on the screenplay before the novel was published See, this is so interesting and this is part of why, why I want to read the novel just because like I did a cursory look at you know what what's going on in there and it definitely looks like it has a lot more backstory on um uh Miriam 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 Miriam's yeah. character um you know and like where she like things that we see flashes of in the movie like it looks like there's actual some real backstory there and there's more interplay with her and the fact that like Sarah's working on like basically a cure for aging and that sort of thing like I feel like that kind of gets dropped halfway through the movie um, right so I'd be interested to read the book and compare the two. Um, you know, I, for the most part, books don't tend to change too much pre-publication to publication, but you also said that you have an arc of um, imaginary friend that is yeah. quite different from the published product. So yeah. I'd be yeah. interested to just and I, explore all of that. And I also had a, and I can't remember what now, but I also, I had an arc of something, this was a couple years ago that I read. And then when the book was published, I picked it up at work and was glancing at it. And I was like, this is vastly different. Yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like that's very rare that you sort of focus yeah. test, at least fiction books. It seems to be the consensus that there's not too much change. Yeah. Um, that really threw me for a while. And so now I'm very weary of arcs. <laughs> <laughs> I even have a massive pile of them <laughs> in the other room because that's what happens in my job um but yeah and so and so yeah they they essentially write the movie before the book is even on shelves and um they're they're fast-tracking things um they go into pre-production and casting very quickly the dutch actress sylvia christo um who's famous for emmanuel um expressed a lot of interest in playing miriam but tony scott just didn't see it don't see it yeah I, i'm assuming they wanted big names like mgm film mm -hmm. enough in this movie because right well it's nothing i mean they're all i mean your three leads are you know like a pretty they are pretty stacked cast pretty stacked cast it was filmed mostly in the uk uh and around london in particular which doubled for manhattan which is where the story is actually set um and i think watching it you definitely it doesn't feel like new york to me right and you know, it's, I guess maybe part of it's like the architecture and that sort of thing. But then like, I was thinking about how dreary the movie is 
Mm. And like that plays into like, um, you know, like the dreary weather and that sort of thing, like plays into like everything that's going on with like the story and the characters, but just thinking about like, yeah, like, you know, that's a very London UK, like it doesn't really, you know, like obviously it rains in New York, but like, I think of like a dreary foggy thing happening in London, like knowing that now I can really see that while watching it that basically every single shot they took they had except for like the final sequence is like looks like you know your stereotypical day in london right and it's interesting you mentioned the final sequence because as we'll get to later there's mm-hmm. a reason that feels off yeah actually do you want to talk a little bit about that <laughs> yeah. yeah so the final so one thing that we i think kind we kind of agreed on walking out of the movies that it kind of ends abruptly mm. um you know and i think that was one of the criticisms that we'll you know we'll get to when we talk about it. it's contemporaneous versus retrospective um you, you know critical response but um it it ends like very suddenly um when it feels like there's got to be at least like another hour of like something you know of stuff going on but um it ends with you know stop now go watch it if you don't want to know how it ends (laughs) come back now that you're back and you've watched it um basically (laughs) the the plot of the movie is um miriam is this um i can never say french last names her say say her name for me yeah oh catherine denez Deneuve, thank you. So that's Deneuve's character is Miriam. And um, she's this ageless, they don't use the word vampire, um, but that's obviously what it is. Um, She's this, you know, ageless vampire woman who um, has taken throughout her time since like, basically we have flashbacks to like, you know, like ancient civil, like ancient Egypt and that sort of thing. It was so Um, fascinating and so quick. I was like, more of this. Well, and that's what it seems like is in the book. Like, uh, there seems to be a lot more of that in the book. Because um, she, like, has, like, a whole, like, in one of the, in, like, the brief synopsis that I read, that you know, like, the jacket sort of copy that comes with it was to, like, naming lovers that she had in ancient Egypt and that sort of thing. So, anyway, she takes on, like, lovers every couple hundred years because, like, she, you know, she turns them into vampires as we would understand it in media by um you know the normal channel of you know drink blood somebody drinks your blood but it's presented in the movie in the book as like a pathogen so she sort of like turns her these humans into something like her and then they she tells them they'll live forever but really they only live for like two or three hundred years and they start to like rapidly decay Mm -hmm. which is what happens to david bowie's character he dies, so she takes Sarah as her as her new lover, and Sarah is turned into this, you know, creature of the night or whatever you want to call it, and she rejects it and says no, thank you, and like attacks Miriam, and Miriam gets pushed down some stairs, and then is dead. Somehow, it's sorry, or is she? Um, but it ends pretty abruptly. Mm. Um. That entire sequence happens. We then later cut to like, you know, a realtor coming in and the useless cops like looking through the house and that sort of thing. Um, 
you know, and life has moved on, but <clears throat> we have this shot at the end of Sarah, like kind of on a, a balcony at like a sunset or sunrise, um, you know, with what looks to be like a new lover. Um, right. So it's like perpetuating the cycle of um, what Marion was doing. This scene looks so different visually and feels so out of place because it was a last minute addition asked for by the studio because they wanted the possibility of sequels. Um, you know, like Craig said, like clearly they they felt strongly that this product was going to do well and be well received um, because they, they put that in there. Um, Susan Sarandon really didn't like it, apparently. Um, you know, and it, it really does undo like everything that kind of happens in the crux of the movie. But um, yes, that is that is like, you know, visually it feels completely off. Um, we're not really 100% sure what's going on. It seems to sort of undo the rules of the world that we learned for the past two hours previous. Um, so it's interesting. It is really interesting. And it it was my least favorite part of the movie, which is unfortunate because it was the ending. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's lots of really good and interesting things about the movie. Um, yes. One in particular, I think, was the sound, mm -hmm. and the music of this film, um, which is really interesting. So Howard Blake was the musical director um overseeing both the soundtrack and the score there was and is i guess a soundtrack album that you can find out there but it doesn't actually include a lot of the music used in the film so i'm just like so is it just vibes like vibe music <laughs> it's like music? i made a spotify playlist that's like right. this is what i listened to while writing this thing yeah it's kind of interesting um, in regards to the score, Scott wanted it to be largely classical, so Blake played him a number of different pieces that he thought might work, including um, the duet for two sopranos um, from the opera Lacme, and the second mover, movement of Schubert's piano trio in E-flat, um, both of which are heard in the film. Scott wanted to add some synthesizer in true 80s fashion, of course, um, so Blake introduced him to Hans Zimmer, but Scott eventually decided he was gonna go with a score that had been um, sort of drafted up by Michel Rubini and Denny Yeager with electronics by David Lawson. And that is the score that we hear in the finished film. Additionally, the Gothic rock band Bauhaus plays their song, Bella Lugosi's Dead during the famous opening sequence. And the song itself has now become a cult classic much as the film has. And then the piece of music that we repeatedly hear played at the piano um, by Alice and Miriam um, is the flower duet, also from Leo Delabes' opera, Lacme. This movie has a really interesting sound. Yes. There yeah, is a The way it vibes between, you know, that opening sequence of like, you know, like somebody's grungy, basement type feeling like house music and then going to like these sequences like 
these classical pieces on the cello, on piano, and just it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I interpret it as like, I don't know, another way of like signaling this clash of worlds or like, you know, the mm. classical, we sort of think of that as being old world. Miriam's very old, right? Mm -hmm. Mixed with this like to the moment grungy rock 80s sort of scene, like mm -hmm. the world's living in now. It's thematically a good juxtaposition of those two. Sounds. Yeah, because even if you think about where we first meet the two characters, because they're in that opening sequence in that, you know, club where this, you know, gothic synth, synth music is playing, and then, like, where they live is this, like, crazy Upper East Side, like, you know, brownstone mansion that's got marble floors, and they dress super fancy and nice, and they play their classical music on, like, Tuesdays with some neighborhood kid. Um, that whole sequence is kind of weird, but, um, yeah, just like very, very different vibes. Yeah. So the film is pretty minimalist. I feel like when it comes to makeup and over the top special effects, but there definitely is blood in this movie. Um, and there definitely is some special effects. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. So, um, Anthony Clavet, Clavet, I don't know, it's Italian, interesting, of Italian Vogue did the makeup. I feel like you see that, and I want to say Clavet because French, but, um, right. He works for Italian Vogue. Um, but, um, yeah, so like the, the main, like, sort of like special effects and makeup of the scenes, um, is in like the aging. Yeah. stuff that they do which i was really thinking like in the early stages of david bowie's like aging sequence it actually looked pretty cool mm -hmm. um and pretty realistic and then obviously the farther along you get the more sort of like inhumanly aged they wanted him to look because the idea is that you know rather than dying you would just keep aging and decaying while still alive so um uh, miriam's lovers are all in these coffins like up in the attic and they're not dead they're just yeah. basically like turning into like living corpses in the crypt keeper and just continuing looking older and older and older so um it's pretty interesting because it you know it's at a certain point it's made to look unbelievable because it's meant to just be sort of just this nightmarish um you know old aged body um and i thought that was very interesting but unfortunately for the film um so good news and bad news right um the good news is that. it was the only film to receive enough votes for an oscar nomination for best makeup the bad news is is you need at least two films to even have the award given out in the first place right and nothing else was nominated that year so there was no oscar for makeup given that year i think like emotionally we can say it won but um it it did not on a technicality it did not win the oscar for for makeup did not nothing did that year. it's yeah. just like really you're just gonna go with nothing rather than just give it to the hunger yeah it's very bizarre but, um, yeah. yeah. All right. Do you want to lead us through the roll call? Yeah, for a second I was like, where are we? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so now we'll do our roll call and talk a bit about um, performances or characters or both. Um, mm -hmm. And starting in billing order, we have Catherine Deneuve as Miriam Blaylock, um, our eternal vampire lady. Sort of seductive, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Um, you know, the, what's interesting about this character is like. She's a real milk. She's a real mill. She's the ultimate. Mill. <laughs> um, she she's like can she's condemned. We don't know how many mm -hmm. people. Yeah, there's over, just boxes and boxes up in her. <laughs> right. You like an absolutely horrific fate. Mm -hmm. Essentially, just existing in eternal decay, but not being able to die or have rest. Mm -hmm. But there's something about her, like like she's not malicious. Right. I and get the sense that it's like because she doesn't want to like live her life alone. Like that would be incredibly lonely. I was no, like throughout the entire movie, I was just so sympathetic. I was like, this is really sad. This is a very sad story. And or she lives a sad life. And I, I saw a, a review on Letterboxd when I was you know, logging the film and doing that or whatever. And it was like, this movie is the epitome of being sad and horny. <laughs> That's her. Yeah. She does both brilliantly. Yeah. Sad and horny. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, and I think she, you know, you don't really get that emotion and that sort of like core of it without, without her performance. Yeah. Yeah, and this movie, I think, really introduced American audiences to Deneuve, who was mm -hmm. uh, sort of one of the great French actresses. Um, and this was her chance to pop overseas. Then we have David Bowie as John Blaylock, her current lover, husband, lover. companion. Um, we see, we do get a flashback of when these characters meet. It's like sometime in the 1700s, it looks like. Yeah, he's like a stable boy. As well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I liked it. I think um, because you associate David Bowie so much with flamboyant performances, and this was such a low-key, like, he didn't have a, a ton of lines. He, the ones he had, he delivered very quietly. Um, yeah, it's very understated. Yeah, which I, I appreciate. I also love, you know, like the labyrinth and Twin Peaks and all his other unhinged things, but I can appreciate him being sort of like a, a quiet, you know, yeah, normal, as normal as you can be, but just, you know, a, a very, as you said, understated uh, character. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And then we have our our third and final lead, um, and probably my favorite performance in the film, Susan Sarandon as Sarah Roberts. Yeah, great. Um, I was getting like uh, almost like Ripley vibes a little bit. There's definitely a little bit there, especially in the, like when she's fighting the transformation. Mm -hmm. And just the way she conveys how like physically painful that is and mm -hmm the titular hunger that she's experiencing. <laughs> hunger. Um, 
it was really it was just good some solid acting from the great i almost said the late great susan sarandon not dead remember i did that before for somebody i was like the late great and they were still very much alive (laughs) um yeah and so all three of them great performances they're all actually above title which is interesting that's expensive yeah and then right after them we have clifton young as tom haver Um, as an unclear relationship with um sarah yeah because i thought he was her husband but then i think he's just her friend from work who's like really overly involved in her life right and like they've kind of been dating yeah it wasn't clear to me yeah it was really weird um annoying character but not a bad performance yeah then we have Dan Hadaya as Lieutenant uh, Alagreza, mm-hmm. who sort of starts poking around the Blaylock house and investigating, you know, after John um, goes to Sarah's clinic and then he's not around anymore and then Alice disappears and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then uh, Beth Ellers <clears throat> gets the and as Alice Cavender. Fine, good performance. Um, Interesting just whole sequence and character and thing that happens. Yeah, I wasn't- I feel like that's another thing that was probably explained better in the book. And I'm wondering if in the book, so thinking about the Alice character, I think of, essentially the scene leading up to her death mm-hmm. which we don't see but we know that that's what's going to happen right like john yeah. contemplating he's going he's going to kill her and he does kill her and i guess like i'm wondering did he kill her out of like a desperate attempt to like see if her blood would keep him young or does he kill her out of like a desire because he's feeling jealous and angry at Miriam and he thinks she's going to make Alice her next lover? I was wondering that just because like the way, like she goes over there for like music. They like sit around and play music together, I guess. It's weird. But, you know, it feels a little bit almost like a grooming um, situation right. um, where, you know, and who knows, you know, like, you know, like there's definitely a lot in that relationship um, that existed before we meet these characters. Um, like it definitely feels very established and like, yeah, okay, like there, there's a lot there and they have a history and 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 that sort of thing. Because um, my original thinking- They have a bed was, in the middle of their room. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my original thinking was, um, yeah, that he was doing it in a sort of desperate attempt to see, um, you know, if he could sort of slow his aging process. Um, and I still think that's that's what he's doing. But you raise a good point that he he does like how it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was like sort of like it wouldn't surprise me a if she was like sort of like intending to make this girl her sort of next companion at mm-hmm. some point and that he you know 
was having a jealous reaction to that because um, he does at one point mention the others in reference to um, her previous companions, lovers, whatever you want to call them. And, um, you know, he asks basically how long it took for them to, you know, sort of have it because it seems, you know, we get the feel, we get the sense that she lies to them and says like, oh, this will make you live forever. But really, it's, it's not forever. Um, so he's got, he's feeling like betrayal and that sort of thing. Um, and the whole, the whole, and the thing is, is the entire time in the sequence, like, you know, what's going to happen, but it's so tense because they do that thing where they like fake you out. Like he reaches for something and you're like, oh my God, it's going to be a knife. And it's like, you know, the remote control to the TV and, you know, like different sort of tense things like that until eventually, um, you know, he, he makes his move. Yeah. It's a great scene. It's very well executed. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, and then so then, and so that's all the named and build cast. And then just really quickly, we'll mention um, Rufus Collins as Charlie Humphreys, Suzanne Bertesh as Phyllis, Shane Rimmer plays Arthur Jelanek, John Stephen Hill and Anne Magnuson play the couple from the disco in the opening sequence uh, who are killed by Miriam and John. James Aubrey plays Ron, who is Sarah's victim. John Pankow and Willem Dafoe play the mm -hmm. phone booths um, that are in a, in a brief scene. Douglas Lambert is the TV host and Sophie Ward as the girl in the London house. And then uh, interestingly, noted and famous silent film star Bessie Love mm -hmm. makes uh, her final on-screen appearance as Lily Bell, a character at um, Sarah's book signing. Yeah. And then, as we mentioned, the band Bauhaus is the disco group that plays um, during the opening credit sequence. Nice. So that's that next. So, um, what uh, what fun production notes do you have about the the hunger force and the smell? There's some interesting things that went on with the making of this. <laughs> we have a couple. Um, uh, reportedly of interest is, uh, and you actually had a um, uh, an interesting tidbit to this tidbit. So. You know, on the so the first thing is that um, Deneuve apparently like intimidated David Bowie quite a bit, which is funny to think about David Bowie being intimidated by anybody, right? Um, but he had the opposite situation with his other co-star, <laughs> Susan Sarandon. If you want to share that tidbit, um, yeah, <laughs> um. Yeah, again, kind of odd to think that David Bowie would um, be intimidated by anyone, really. Um, but uh, <laughs> also even odder to think, I think, of David Bowie having an affair with Susan Sarandon, <laughs> which is what happened, evidently, during the making of The Hunger. You know. Revealed and was not public knowledge until Susan Sarandon let the world know in an interview in 2014. Which did she do that because, like, wasn't it around when he died? <laughs> did she, did she uh, throw that out there because he died? Quickly checking on his death date, 2016. Okay. 
So he was still alive when she he was alive to hear that she shared their dirty laundry. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I have also seen like otherwise that I, the cast of this movie was very close and kept in touch with each other for you know. years and years and years. And I was like, well, I guess that makes sense. Um, so I guess whatever, when it ended, it ended amicably. But. I don't, I don't, I, I don't believe that Deneuve was not in any way involved in this. Like, I don't <laughs> believe that a, 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 um, a, uh, a threesome wasn't on the table. Especially given the nature of the movie they were making. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Um, speaking mm-hmm. of, um, one of the more unintentionally comedic scenes in the film is the scene where uh, Miriam seduces Sarah, <laughs> which got a big ruckus laugh uh, in the um, in the theater when we watch it? Because it honestly plays like the beginning to like any porn film you've ever seen, right? Where she's hanging out with uh, Miriam because she goes over to basically talk to her about um, earlier in the film john had tried to see sarah to help get help with his aging issue and she came to check on john and she runs into Miriam. Miriam offers her a drink and they get to chatting and i you don't know what was in that drink but um sarah just throws the the drink upon herself she's she spills on herself in a very like unbelievable fashion and then it's like oh no i have to take my shirt off <laughs> and thus begins this sensual montage of her taking off her shirt and and then like slowly coming in for the it's ridiculous and apparently susan sarandon also thought <laughs> the great lesbian con of 83 <laughs> yep um it, it was nuts um she thought there was definitely an easier way to do it than the way they did it and the libations weren't necessary but um you know i honestly at this point i wouldn't have it any other way right it, was, <laughs> it, gave, it, it gave everyone such a laugh and an otherwise very sort of like staid serious film mm-hmm. <laughs> so i yeah. like it um, another fun fact is, and this actually makes sense considering he's a musician of other other talents, but David Bowie learned to play cello for his his concert scene. That's pretty cool. Um, so he's actually, I well, who knows if he's actually playing and if they didn't just overlay it with a professional, but he learned uh, to play it at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as we mentioned, this is Willem Dafoe's on big screen debut. <laughs> Take that to your trivia night if, if they say number two. <laughs> if they want you to name uh, Willem Dafoe's debut film, is yeah. this. anything else is a lie. <laughs> um, also, like we said, uh, Bessie Love. If you are ever somewhere and they want to know her final film, mm-hmm. it's this one. Um, so there were some cl- conflicting stories out there about how the. Um, seduction and sex scene was filmed with um Deneuve and Sarandon mm. um different people say different things that there was body doubles but that they're actually I think Scott has said that they had a closed set and there weren't body doubles but you said Deneuve uh, set the record straight on this yeah she 
she said that essentially like everyone was kind of right she said there was a close set but there were also body doubles um and that so some so sometimes it was her and Sar and sarandon and then sometimes it was the doubles mm -hmm. um but it was all on a close set yeah. which seems pretty typical yeah yeah more or less i think when it's two big name actresses getting potentially naked it's for some reason a a point of interest for people yeah everyone freaks out about it and yeah. yeah um tell us about how this film was received when it came out yeah so so the hunger is released on april 29th 1983 it makes a cool 1.8 million opening weekend um but it's not super great for that weekend because it actually places fifth coming in behind Flashdance, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Tootsie, and Valley Girl. And I believe Something Wicked This Way Comes and Valley Girl were also new releases. Flashdance and Tootsie had already opened. The film goes on to make uh, $6 million domestic and an estimated 10.2 million worldwide for its gross. I couldn't find where anywhere what the budget was. All I mm -hmm. could find was that um, this was considered a disappointment. So more than likely that means it didn't recoup. Mm. It's interesting because you think like from a production standpoint, it doesn't seem like it would be too expensive, but I think the names you have in the film and that's probably the bulk of the budget were the salaries. Yeah. But um, it wasn't completely maligned. There were positive reviews, um, mostly stating that the film was very beautiful and it was exceptionally filmed. And of course, that it was well cast. As we said, they, they brought in heavy hitters for the three big roles. But by and large, um, it wasn't well received critically and those negative reviews um, said that the film was too heavy on atmosphere and set design um, to the detriment of the plot and the pacing and that the movie lacked substance and that it lacked a clear focus. I can agree with um, a lot of that. I think um, I definitely enjoyed it more than a lot of the critics at the time did. But I can see like, you know, I mean, the first thing we said when we walked out was that it seemed like it ended, you know, an hour earlier than it should have. And, um, you know, there were some more questions than answers, I think, in some of the, the, you know, what was going on and, you know, what are the rules of this world and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I definitely agree. I don't feel as harshly about those contemporary critics. Um, like you said, yeah, definitely agree that it was the third act was a bit too rushed. That being said, I loved looking at it and I loved mm. the aesthetics of the movie and it, it is really visually intriguing and kind of um, haunting and beautiful. And so that made up for a lot of the detriments to me. Um, mm -hmm. And so currently, um, The Hunger has a Rotten Tomato score of 56%, a Metacritic score of 52 out of 100, its IMDb rating is 6.6 .6, and its letterbox rating is 3.5 out of 5. And I feel like that 
that's where I would put it. I'd call it a 3.5 for me. Yeah, it seems like the um, the uh, audience aggregated ones are a little bit higher than the critical ones, which I think makes sense. Yeah, especially since because, um, you know, maybe maybe if we actually will, maybe we'll jump to legacy, legacy, what is a legacy? Um, just because yeah, that's yeah. a good segue. Um, the film has kind of developed a cult following mm -hmm. um, and more retroactive reviews have uh, really praised the atmosphere of the film, particularly the opening sequence, the design aesthetics have been influential on the Gothic subculture. Um, Brian Fuller has cited it as an inspiration for Hannibal. Uh, and it actually spawned a television series, evidently. Yeah. I know I don't think it ran for very long and it was not at all I think connected to whatever happened in what like the stuff in the movie it was its own deal but um I yeah. think the it had enough second life um that uh it got it got that <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah and like you know now we were saying it's definitely a cult film like particularly in the goth subculture um like that's how I knew of the hunger I was like oh yeah it's a cult mm -hmm. film um yeah it was nominated for best costume and best makeup at the Saturn Awards so it didn't get that Oscar nomination but it got it at the Saturn Awards um but it lost both of those awards to Return of the Jedi how did they not get nominated for an Oscar for best makeup but right like, but then it got the Saturn for best makeup. Yeah, <laughs> something's off there. Uh, a remake of The Hunger was announced in 2009 and it was going to be um, written by Schreiber, but nothing really happened with that. And everyone kind of thought it was dead until last year, um, the remake was once again announced. This time it's uh, supposedly being written by Jessica Scharzer, who has written and produced for The L Word and American Horror Story. Which it makes sense because this movie ultimately feels like if those two pieces of media had a baby. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to say, all right. I'd be interested to see where they get, because there's so much there with the, the concept and the mythology and the backstory. Um, you know, obviously the movie as it is now is, you know, has a, a place in the hearts of many and yeah. you know the the aesthetic and the directorial choices are very important to people but um i would like to see a version of it that explores um you know that's maybe less focused on aesthetics and an atmosphere and more focused on you know what's going on in this world and um you know what's the history here and that sort of thing yeah so let's talk a bit about what's going on in this world like with our analysis of this movie because um, yeah. there's a lot of interesting stuff there, particularly as it relates to um, homoeroticism and vampirism. And you had some yeah. interesting about that to bring up. Yeah, so obviously, you know, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd say obvious now, because it's obvious to us now that, you know, all vampires are gay. Um, right. You know, that's just, that is what it is. Um, this discussed in last month's episode, Dracula. Yes. Um, <laughs> You know, and the, that's 
you know, to us, that's obvious in this time period, you know, it was still basically, yes, a lot of vampires were gay, or at least um, vampirism was really attached to sex. And like, there was an interplay with sex and violence in a moralistic way, like, you know, they were trying to, to put something that way. Um, so this is like coming on the, um, you know, the heels of like, you know, we're equating violence and, and sex and moral degradation and vampirism and all this is coming together. But in this regard, and you know, I, again, like I haven't read the book, so I, you know, I want to read the book to see how he's positing it because this, you know, basically the other big, um, you know, vampire media that's coming out before this is Interview with the Vampire, which I think came out in 78, 76 or 78, the book. Um, which I don't know how gay the book is, but I know that the, the, the movies are pretty gay. <laughs> yes. I imagine the books are too. So, you know, and in this situation, in, in that regard, to me, it doesn't seem like it's making a moral judgment. It seems like it's like a sort of like, this is what life is like, and these are who these people are. And um, that seems to be what this story is doing is, you know, like, you know, Miriam isn't picky, you know, she's a yeah. bajillion years old she's gonna live forever so she you know she's pretty down to clown with anyone um and that's just the way it is um which i found interesting um yeah. but in terms of like the sort of like confluence of of violence and sex in in vampire uh media and in this movie the opening sequence is um you know john and miriam seducing this couple at a um, club with the intent of like having sex with that sex with them and then drinking their blood is interspersed with scenes of like animal violence and that sort of thing um which is very interesting and is saying a lot in and of itself um one thing that i found and i didn't see people really talking about this it's just something i started to think about as i was doing research and thinking about the movie is that you know this came out in the very beginnings of the AIDS epidemic, um, at least at a time when we would have known that something was happening um, and that a lot of people were getting sick and, and dying. Um, so it makes like, you know, when you have sex and violence and pathogen and ultimately dying, like all coming together and, you know, like the exchange of blood and bodily fluids in, in happening during sex and then, you know, Sarah becomes a vampire and the way it, you know, really mimics a sexually transmitted disease. Um, Wasting away. Yeah, and yeah, and like all of it was very, it's, it, it really stood out to me and I would just, I wasn't really seeing any um, analysis out there, like talking about that. Um, interesting, because I feel like there's so much there. Yeah, to me, like, to me, it was like, you know, like this seems like the obvious thing to talk about, but it's um, right. I wasn't. I wasn't seeing a ton. A lot of seeing a lot of analysis talking about the atmosphere and you know that sort right. of thing. But the other thing with that is um in talking about her distaste for the final scene, Susan Sarandon um, you know, talked about her character's journey as quote, um, that she quote, killed herself uh, rather than become an addict. Um, which is what she equated that whole situation with, which I, again, in this context, thought was interesting because, you know, the, the number one and number two victims of um, 
you know, death as a result of a complication of AIDS was, um, you know, gay people and gay men specifically and um, drug users. So it was interesting to me that she sort of brought that in. Like that was her reading of like the, the theme of the character and Sarah's choice. And like, that's how she was reading what was happening was that, oh, like Sarah inadvertently became addicted to a substance and rather than live her entire life as, you know, with the titular hunger and um, as a, as an addict, she decided to, to kill herself, which is, you yeah. know, in and of itself, very complicated and problematic. But I think what's interesting is like, you know, that's not really presented in the first half of the film. Like, there's not really anything there about this being, you know, an addictive, um, you know, obviously it is because you're, you, you want to drink human blood and you're hungry and whatever, but, um, like, you know, in the beginning of the film, the first half of the film, it's very much about, like, the loneliness of living forever and right. companionship and seeking sort of, and, you know, like, the tragedy of, of a love story, um, and um, sort of star-crossed lovers and that sort of thing. And then I guess at some point, at least to Susan Sarandon, it becomes about um, addiction and, and, you know, making the choice to, to escape addiction. Oh, and I think there's this thread of this sense of vanity and this sense of pride throughout the movie as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like with with our vampire characters, obviously, you know, sort of, sort of like the vanity of of, of youth and mm-hmm. um, sort of like John being denied the dignity of aging, right? Mm-hmm. Because so rapidly because of what Miriam has done to him, but she gets to sort of retain her dignity and her pride and you know her youth and mm-hmm. and but then you know Sarah also has this this different kind of sense of pride and sense of self. And that I think leads her to that choice to say, no, I'm rejecting this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you down with me. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's these two worlds or two thematic arcs, maybe, you know, Right. And there's no real payoff, I think, for the fact that, you know, Sarah's entire research, her whole career is about studying aging and trying to slow down the aging process in animals and probably eventually slow it down in humans. Um, And then she has this thing happen to her where, you know, she gets it, you know, she will stop aging and, and that sort of thing. And there's really not like a moment of like, her sort of piecing all that together or having the the themes pay off at all um, right which is unfortunate yeah because it's kind of like there's an opening there where we could take this road and you know you always have to be careful it's like well the movie could have been this mm-hmm. but it just it felt like maybe we were going to a place where it was going to be like but the beauty of life is aging yeah. or aging is beautiful or the true beauty here is not Miriam it's the idea like it's that life is finite and it only lasts so long mm-hmm. and it kind of feels like we're going that way but we don't end up there yeah which again cur- I will I'm curious to read the book and see yeah you know, 
what that's like. Um, or that's the these are all reasons too why I'd be interested in seeing a remake, you know. Um, right. Something that is does have more room to be story focused as opposed to um, you know, aesthetic focused. Yeah, I agree. Hopefully that's actually gonna be in the works. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about one good scare. Uh what moment from the hunger frightened you the most? I would say one thing that really stuck out to me is um, the sequence where she first puts John in the coffin and you see all the other coffins of her past lovers and then she she walks up to another one and puts her hand on it as if to say hello to this person and like knowing that they're all in there, you know, alive, but but just constantly in a state of aging and decay and like you know, they were somebody 500 years ago and, you know, like the sort of pain of reminiscing uh, and all that stuff like that, just that whole sequence, I think really, really hit me. I would echo that. That really unsettled me um, when we sort of understood the true implication of what she's been doing and what John's fate is now, the fate of all these other men and women through the centuries. It was just like, oh my gosh, that's horrific and yeah. not worth the payoff for 200 years of life yeah yeah um no normally the view from the closet but i think chatterers you'll admit this is a pretty gay movie this is a pretty gay movie the view from the closet was wide open on the hunger um so if you'll permit us, I think we'll jump to our closing question, which is prepared for us tonight by the lovely Miss Mel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, barring, you know, the vampirism and that sort of thing and the ultimate fate of, of uh, Miriam's companions, um, you know, that aside, if you could um, pick any celebrity, I guess, or anyone out there to live forever with, but actually live forever with, uh, no. who, would it, who would it be? And it could be in a sexy way, in a friendship way, in a Ooh, way. That is a good one. Yeah. I didn't um, want you, you know, don't don't think you're condemning them to a David Bowie fate though. It's right, okay, right, yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no David Bowie fates. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Initially, I was like, hmm, who would I want to? But then <laughs> maybe it would be better to just have someone who would just is more a friend that you know mm -hmm. you would always. Spear bud. Yeah. Oh gosh, this is tough. This is tough. This is tough. Do you have an answer while I'm? I I was thinking about it even you know today when I was thinking about the question because I was like okay if I ask him this I need to have an answer myself. Right. Um, and you know honestly like you know it it makes sense that this is the case but my brain immediately went to to Gaga. You know, because you, you got know. you know she you know she'll be your bud. You know, she'll listen to you. She'll talk to you. She'll entertain you. 
you know um she already seems like she's probably lived for 2000 years emotionally be <laughs> Marion Blaylock yeah yeah and, and if you, you know, know if you want to get sexy you can do that too right I was I was just about to say if you kind of felt like eventually you were kind of feeling it like she's pretty much always down to clown I think yeah so that's she a really also would make a very good Miriam, I think, in the remake. Remake, I know. Well, like the Countess in American Horror Story. Yeah, basically. So hopefully, hopefully somebody's got their eye on that. Yeah. Yeah. I that God is a really solid choice. Um, I don't want to be lame and say that's also my choice. Um <laughs> so... <laughs> we can so... choose different Gaga eras. How about well, how about this? I th- <laughs> I'm gonna go. In terms of like fun and entertainment, but also like mm-hmm. probably like a really like like you would have some wild times. I'm gonna mm-hmm. say Meryl Streep. Oh, that would be yeah. Run around. Just run around having adventures with Meryl. Yeah. You know, obviously That's like they're our greatest living actress, so she'd entertain you to no end. Mm-hmm. And- mm-hmm. She'd have stories about everyone and everything. Like you'd go Story somewhere and she'd be like, "One time I was here." Right. Yeah. worked with everybody like huge you know yeah so that's my choice that's good one nice <laughs> well i think unless there's anything else we're dying to bring to the table for the hunger no, uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna read the book and maybe we'll have a retrospective at some point or i'll give you an update on a horror headline after i read it right tell you right. if there's there's payoff whenever you get the book um but for now i think we'll close out episode 104 um Mm -hmm. if you have thoughts about the hunger or um sexy vampires or phantasmagal dinosaurs you should share them with us and there's lots of ways you can do that miss mel how they can do that by tweeting at us at splatterchatter666. Um, as far as we know, nobody has paid for a blue check to steal our identity yet on Twitter, although oh, I hear that's, uh, that's happened to some people. Um, but uh, we're on Twitter. We're very on Twitter. Um, just search Splatter Chatter. We'll pop right up. Um, feel free to tweet at us there. You can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can send us a, an ask in our ask box, as they say, on the uh, splatterchatter.tumblr.com, uh, which is manned by a friend of the podcast, Colleen. Um, we are also occasionally dabble on Instagram at uh, splatterchatter666 on there. And you can always leave a comment on anything we put up on the blog at splatter-chatter.com fantastic mm-hmm. all right that concludes episode 104 on the hunger when we return to your ears in december for episode 105 um we will once again have a very special guest uh mm-hmm. who we're quite excited to get a chance to talk to and that is uh director writer and actor josh rubin uh, who will be here to talk about two movies of his that will be dropping on Shutter? One, I think, will already be out at the time of this episode 
going up next week. And I think a wounded fawn comes out December 1st. Okay. So we're going to talk to him about those. We're going to talk to him about um, his movies, Scare Me, and Where What Was Within. We're looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. We don't know what we're. As you know, you recommended Scare Me to me, and I quite enjoyed it. So. Yeah. That was one of my top ones for 2019, I think. I think so. Yeah, that was a good one. So be on the lookout for that and for Josh Rubin stopping by. Until then, we want to wish all you American Shatterers a happy Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And of course, keep up the creep during your turkey day. Mm -hmm. And for now, we will say- Thanks killing. And for now, we will say, nice tits, bitch. (laughs) 